Well, a happy Wednesday night to you all. Good to see you this evening. Good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen. And a couple of things before we jump in. One, we've had many phone calls concerning our Israel trip in 2020. And just so you know, the dates we announced are firm. We're going to be providing a link for the trip here pretty soon. The dates are going to be March 30th through April 7th. Uh, the interesting thing about this particular trip and timing is we are going to be leaving Israel the day before Passover. We'll get home on Wednesday, and then that Friday is Good Friday, and the following Sunday is Easter. So what a great time to be in Israel uh, just before Passover and head home in time for Easter. And then this uh, Sunday morning will be in Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, uh, if you'd like to read ahead. And we're headed into some pretty interesting chapters uh, here in the book of Acts as we are a very curious chapter, uh, going to be encountering that tonight here in 1 Samuel. So if you would, open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 23. 1 Samuel 23. And we mentioned the last couple of visits to our book that we had segued into a 10-year time period where David was going to be on the lamb, so to speak. He was going to be running and hiding for, from King Saul for nearly 10 years. And the experiences that we have been reading have led to David pinning some of the Psalms that we're all familiar with and uh, are very appropriate to what we have read thus far. And if you remember, chapter 21 gave birth to the content of Psalm 34, which happens to be one of my favorite Psalms, and also Psalm 56. We found that Psalm 22 was the backstory for Psalms 52 and 57. And the latter half of what we'll read tonight was the foundation for David writing Psalm 54. And we'll look at what exactly was written there throughout our course of study tonight. Now, our topic and title tonight is going to be somewhat of a an extension, I should say, of what we looked at last week. And what we considered last time, rather, was simply from chapter 22. There's only two ways to do anything. And that is we can either do it God's way or we can do it the wrong way. God is always right. Amen. And therefore, we always want to do things the way that he would have us to do them and do them in the timing that he would uh, reveal to us. Now, to send our thinking in the right direction for tonight, let me remind you of our takeaways from chapter 22. First of all, we found that God will never send us where he has not gone before us. He is always leading us and directing us. We are never pioneering his cause. He is always going before us to prepare a way. We also found the rather interesting profundity, a rather obvious point in our second observation that the cost and consequences of sin are best avoided by not sinning. Somebody say, no kidding. Now, we also learned in conclusion that when God's God's people fail, they can always, say always, they can always fail forward. Now, The Lord knew who his choice for king was going to be and the family that he would come from. And he knew someday the man after God's own heart was going to flee to Moab. And when David fled to Moab, he arrived at a place where he had a family connection and therefore an audience before the king who would welcome both David and his 400 men. After all, his uh, great-grandparents were Ruth and Boaz. 
Now, we also noted that had David been honest with Ahimelech in the first place, that not only would Ahimelech's life been spared, but also 84 other priests who wore the ephod, as well as their families, because Doeg, the Edomite, who betrayed David's presence, uh, and Ahimelech as well, and lied about him, was sent by Saul to slaughter not just the 85 priests, Ahimelech included, but their entire family lineage. One man happened to escape from the slaughter at Nob, and David did what was right for this young man, and that's when David, we made the case, failed forward. Now in Psalm 54, 1-3, a backdrop from our text, David would write, save me, O God, by your name. There's power in the name of the Lord. Amen? Amen. And vindicate me by your strength. Hear my prayer, O God. Give ear to the words of my mouth. For strangers have risen up against me, and oppressors have sought after my life. They have not set God before them. Now, obviously... David talking about his prayer, the words that come from his mouth, and some of the things we'll look at tonight will become obvious from what we just read in Psalm 54 about the strangers and the strangers who have not set God before them or put God in their uh, perspective and life view, so to speak, are a group known as the Ziphites, and we'll be introduced to them tonight. But they're not alone in this practice because Saul is actually of the same mindset. He's not one to put God in his considerations. He's not one to put God first or put God before him, as David wrote in Psalm 54. Now, the relation to last week's title is found basically in the two groups that are present in our text. One group is a small group. It consists of two men, that being Jonathan and David, who sought to do things God's way. And then you have the other group, and that being Saul and the Ziphites, who did things their own way and therefore the wrong way. Now, the contrast between the two groups can be summarized by their actions, and it's going to give us kind of an unusual title for a message, but I think you'll see it to be the proper title as we make our way through our chapter this evening. And our title is simply Plotting or Praying. Plotting or Praying. What we'll find tonight is that Saul was always plotting against the man after God's own heart, and David was always praying as a man with a heart for God. Now in Psalm 2, 1 to 5, we're reminded, why do the nations rage and the people do what? Plot a vain thing, something that will not accomplish what they uh, desire. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be distressed by God's deep displeasure. I don't want to be distressed by God's not so deep displeasure. I don't want to be in God's displeasure at all. Amen. Now, the enemies of God's people are always plotting against them. They plotted against Jacob. They plotted against Joseph. They plotted against Moses. They plotted against David. They plotted against Nehemiah. They plotted against Daniel. And they plotted against the God-man himself, Jesus. And listen, when they start plotting, we need to start praying. 
Now we're going to see this as David's practice tonight in our chapter. And we'll also see the contrasting results of the two approaches to the same situation. Saul and his group is plotting. David is going to prayer or praying. So we've got 29 verses to cover. We'll start with 1 to 13. So would you stand and read with me, please, from 1 Samuel chapter 23, verses 1 through 13. And we'll learn about plotting or praying. Verse 1, then they told David, saying, Look, the Philistines are in Keilah, and they are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go and attack these Philistines? And the Lord said to David, Go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, Look, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? Then David inquired of the Lord once again, and the Lord answered him and said, Arise and go down to Keilah, for I will deliver the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines, struck them with a mighty blow, and took away their livestock. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. Now it happened when Abiathar, I'm sorry, the son of Ahimelech, fled to David at Keilah, that he went down with an ephod in his hand. And Saul was told that David had gone to Keilah. So Saul said, God has delivered him into my hand, for he has shut himself in by entering a town that has gates and bars. Then Saul called all the people together for war to go down to Keilah to besiege David and his men. When David knew that Saul plotted evil against him, he said to Abiathar, the priest, bring the ephod here. Then David said, O Lord God of Israel, your servant has certainly heard that Saul seeks to come to Keilah to destroy the city for my sake. Will the men of Keilah deliver me into his hand? Will Saul come down as your servant has heard? O Lord God of Israel, I pray, tell your servant. And the Lord said, he will come down. Then David said, Will the men of Keilah deliver me and my men into the hand of Saul? And the Lord said, They will deliver you. So David and his men, about 600, arose and departed from Keilah and went wherever they could go. Then it was told Saul that David had escaped from Keilah. So he halted the expedition. You may be seated. Now, last week we were in Adullam. Keilah is about six miles southeast of Adullam. And David had heard while there about the invasion, Adullam that is, about the invasion of the city and that the Philistines were fighting against this walled-in city and they were stealing the food supply from the previous harvest. They were raiding the threshing floors, as our text tells us. And David did actually what Saul should have been doing, and that was seeking to protect his own people, the people of Keilah, from the attempts to steal their grain, starve them, eventually wear them down, making for the city uh, to be an easy future conquest. But before David did anything, he prayed. And the Lord said, go attack the Philistines and save Keilah. Now, when the plan was revealed to his now band of some 600 men, there was some hesitation on their part. And they said, listen, 
it's, we've got enough going on here in Judah. We don't need to start harassing the Philistines. We've already got Saul breathing down our neck. We're already on the lamb running for our lives. Why would we go attack this particular group, especially since there's only 600 of us and a massive army of them? Do we really need to go looking for trouble somewhere else? So... David inquired of the Lord a second time, and this time he received a more detailed answer. Go down to Keilah, and I will deliver the Philistines into your hands. Now, there's a couple of things I want to pause for us to consider here tonight. And the first is this. Praying is not to the exclusion of planning. Praying is not to the exclusion of planning. David had a plan. I need to go down there and attack these Philistines. But he wanted to make sure if his plan was within God's will. And we find the same principle taught to us in James chapter 4, 13 to 15, where James says, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit, whereas you don't know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Now listen to the counsel here. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. Now listen, whether it's to go here or there to make a buck or to attack the Philistines, prayer is the first place we should submit our plans for approval. We shouldn't examine them according to the likelihood of success or anything else. We need to petition the Lord even when we have laid our plans. I've told people over the years who are considering a step, a move, a jump into ministry or whatever, to remember God is just as faithful to put up stop signs as he is go. So we need to understand and address the Lord as the one who is guiding our steps, even when we have laid out our plans that make perfect sense, that seem to be right within line with the will of God. Now, the second thing I want to pause and make note of is also best addressed through Scripture, where 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18 reminds us to rejoice always and pray without what? Ceasing. Be a constant person of prayer. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. It is God's will that we be a people of prayer. It is God's will that we are constantly in prayer. And listen, one of the important things I think for us to remember, because a lot of people I've talked to over the years get convicted about hearing about this person or that person who is up at zero dark 30 and prays for 25 hours before they start their day every day or any number of hours. It makes people feel guilty. Listen, there are three great prayers in the Old Testament, and they're all in the nines. They're Nehemiah 9, Daniel 9, and Ezra 9. And you can read any of them in three minutes. Listen, God isn't saying, listen, I want you to pray all day and all night and never do anything else. He's saying just be a person of constant and continual prayer. Pray about your every decision. Pray without ceasing. Don't let prayerlessness creep into your life. If you've got a major decision, pray about it. If you've got a minor decision, pray about it. I'll wait here. <laughs> now, listen to, listen to what happened next. David thought, you know what? The guys are making a lot of sense. It doesn't seem rational for us to go up against the Philistines when we've already got enough problems of our own. We're already a disgruntled batch, so to speak, as we found uh, those who were discouraged and uh, with the other life experience problems associated with all that they had gone through and the oppression of Saul to boot. And 
David said, you know, kind of makes sense. There's no point for us to have any more preventable deaths. After all, we just saw the slaughter at Nob. So maybe we ought to rethink this and petition the Lord again. Now, what we need to remember about this is that David wasn't doubting God. He wanted further confirmation. And God is never offended by us going to him and saying, you know what? I'm not sure. Can you tell me more? Can you answer me more clearly? I don't want to do the wrong thing. Now, if we keep going to him when he has said, no, you can't have a Lamborghini. Now, that's a different situation. But David here, they were getting ready to lay their life on the line. And he wanted to know, are you going to be with us? He needed further intel. And so the Lord gave it to him. First, the Lord said, go and attack the Philistines. David said, are you sure? And then the Lord said, you're going to have victory over the Philistines. And that's what he was waiting for. And we read nothing else except they acted on God's answer to prayer. Now, as we see in 9 and 10, David is praying while Saul is plotting. And Saul's plotting led to nothing, and David's praying led to his escape. Now that brings us to our first observation in this expose of plotting versus praying, and that is this. It's simply a point of observation. Listen this evening. Plotting is an effort to get what you want. Praying is the way to get what you need. Plotting is an effort to get what you want. Praying is the way to get what you need. Listen, think about this. David needed something that couldn't be garnered by natural means. There was nobody to ask. He couldn't go to any one of the 600 men. He couldn't have even tapped Jonathan for an answer. And had Saul given him an audience, he certainly couldn't have answered this question because no human had the capacity to know the outcome of the battle. So David went to the one who sees the future just as uh, we can see today, and he knows the past as well. And he is the God of yesterday, today, and forever. Amen. Now, David needed to know, not just if they were going to have battle over the Philistines, he needed to know what those in Keilah were going to do when Saul found out that he and his men were there, which was something that you couldn't hide when they went to rescue and fight against the Philistines. He needed to ask the Lord, hey, are they going to turn me in? Are they going to hand me over to Saul? And the Lord said, yes. Plotting couldn't have gotten David that information. Plotting couldn't get Saul what he wanted. It was prayer that gave David what he needed and thwarted what Saul plotted. Now, In Acts chapter 9, 10 to 12, we're told of a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. Remember, he was told to have an engagement with Saul, who had been blinded on the road to Damascus. And said him to him, the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. So the Lord said, arise and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he is what? He's praying. And in a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Now, later in Acts, we're told in 16, 25 to 26, at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prisons were shaken. And immediately, all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were loosed. How cool was that? 
That had to be something to see, and that's exactly what we always focus on. But let me draw our attention to something else from that story. Listen, Paul prayed and he was delivered from blindness. Paul prayed, the prison was shaken, their chains were loosed, and the jailer and his family were set free. So either way, Paul was delivered from the malady that he had experienced from the, uh, the light, the bright light on the Damascus road. Ananias prayed, scales fell off his eyes. And then later here, Paul is praying and somebody else is delivered by the hand of Almighty God and their family was set free. Now, it's important for us to recognize the contrast between plotting and praying because we can measure the two outcomes here in our text. Saul plotted to get what he wanted. David prayed and got what he needed. He got the answers that told them what to do. Now, that means when you and I find ourselves in the pressure cooker of life, been there? When we find ourselves in the pressure cooker of life, we need to pray because we have a fleshly tendency to plot and come up with our own plans. Let's keep reading in 14 to 23. And David stayed in the strongholds in the wilderness and remained in the mountains in the wilderness of Ziph. Saul sought him every day, but God did not deliver him into his hand, just like the roaring lion roams the earth looking to devour you and I. But God doesn't deliver us into his hand. So David saw that Saul had come out to seek his life, and David was in the wilderness of Ziph in a forest. Then Jonathan, Saul's son, arose and went to David in the woods and strengthened his hand in God. And he said to him, Do not fear, for the hand of Saul, my father, shall not find you. You shall be king over Israel, and I shall be next to you. Even my father Saul knows that. So the two of them made a covenant before the Lord, and David stayed in the woods, and Jonathan went to his own house. Then the Ziphites came up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is David not hiding with us in the strongholds in the woods, in the uh, hill of Hakilah, which is on the south of Jeshimon. Now therefore, O king, come down according to all the desire of your soul to come down, and our part shall be to deliver him, David, into the king's hand. And Saul said, Blessed are you of the Lord, for you have compassion on me. Please go and find out for sure and see the place where his hideout is and who has seen him there, for I am told he is very crafty. See, therefore, and take knowledge of all the lurking places where he hides and come back to me with certainty and I will go with you. And it shall be if he is in the land that I will search for him throughout all the clans of Judah. Now, the mountains in the wilderness of Ziph is also known as the desert of Judah. It's a track of land between the mountains of Judah and the Dead Sea. It's a dry and barren place. Those of you who have been to Israel know that it's south of uh, En Gedi. That's a familiar stop on any uh, Israel tour. And this place is where David is hiding, and this place is where Saul is relentlessly plotting, and the pursuits in the mountains are going on continually by the Ziphites to expose David's actual position to report to Saul. Yet the Lord did not allow Saul to find him. Somebody say amen. Amen. And David had retreated into a forest where the last meeting between he and the man who was of a kindred spirit with him would take place before Jonathan would be killed. 
Now, the word translated as woods in verse 16 can also be translated as a thicket. And there are those who think this is actually the name, a proper name for a district in the desert of Zip. It was described that way because it was overgrown with water bushes. And that is where David was hiding. It wasn't a forest like we would think up in the Sierras or the Sequoias. It was just an overgrown area of uh, wood and bushes. Any of you, again, who have been down to the Dead Sea uh, know there's no uh, huge forest down there. Now, while there's no mention of David and Jonathan praying together, it's clear that the two shared a love for the Lord. And again, we see them reestablishing a former covenant, as we'll talk about in a moment. Now, Jonathan reacted exactly the opposite of his father to the announcement that David was going to be the future king. When the fact is, Jonathan was the one who had the most to lose, not Saul. Yet we're told here, he strengthens David's hand in the Lord. That simply means he encouraged his heart. He brought him good news, so to speak. Not by bringing him supplies, not by bringing him money, not by bringing him any kind of subsidy for his army, but he strengthened David by telling him, do not fear. My father is not going to find you. And he and I both know you're going to be king. Now, Jonathan hadn't heard anything from David about his anointing as king, but he could follow David's actions and see God's protection and also measure it against his own father's conduct. And he would know that David was not going to be overcome. He was going to be king someday indeed. Now, in 1 Samuel 20, 12 to 17, we see the first pairing of these two men where we're told that Jonathan said to David, the Lord God of Israel is witness. When I have sounded out my father sometime tomorrow or seen what he's thinking or the third day, and indeed there is good toward David, and I do not send to you and tell you, may the Lord do so and much more to Jonathan. But if it pleases my father to do you evil, then I will report it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. And the Lord be with you as he has been with my father, and you shall not only show me the kindness of the Lord while I still live that I may not die, But you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord has cut off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, Let the Lord require it at the hand of David's enemies. And now Jonathan again caused David to make a vow because he loved him. For he loved him as he loved his own soul. Well, this would be an encouraging meeting to be sure for David but with knowing the whole story as we do and knowing it is the last encounter between these two men, there's obviously an air of sadness over this meeting, even though Jonathan reiterates his commitment to David. Now, he adds also that when David becomes king, he wants to be the one who stands at David's right hand, a position of honor and a position of loyalty. Now, the treachery of the Ziphites against David forms a bit of a contrast to Jonathan's treatment of David. Now, they went up to Gebeah to betray to Saul the fact that David was hiding in a specific area and on the hill of Hakilah, which lies to the south. The hill was actually a plateau that stood about 100 feet high, and it was a wonderful vantage point to look out on the Dead Sea and the surrounding areas. But... 
It was great for David, but it was also an easy spot for David and his 600 men to be spotted. And the Ziphites could see David and his men moving to and fro in the mountains of the desert of Ziph. So they sent messengers to Saul to say, we know where David is hiding and we'll report it to you and hand him over to you. Now, the interesting thing is that Saul speaks a blessing over them for their compassion on him. Remember what he said in the last chapter? Doesn't anybody feel sorry for me? Doesn't anybody care about me? And here Ahimelech and others have betrayed me and nobody told me. They knew where David was and he continues uh, his whining uh, here. And as he says to them, oh, thank you for finally somebody has compassion on me. And then he says, you know, he's crafty. You're going to have to track him down and give me some exact coordinates so I can come and capture him and therefore obviously implied kill him. Now, David and Jonathan, as I said, reiterate the covenant we just read in uh, from chapter 20 a moment ago. And Saul and the Ziphites institute an evil covenant of their own, hopefully in their minds, leading to David's demise and the Ziphites gaining favor with King Saul. Now, here's what we need to understand, because, again, we do know the whole of the story and how it ends. Listen, here's another takeaway for us. Plotting can never change God's plans. Prayer gives us access to knowing them. Plotting can never change God's plans. Prayer gives us access to knowing them. Now, again, we're not trying to force anything into the text, but Saul can't find David, and yet Jonathan, a godly man, goes right to him. Saul was ungodly. Jonathan was godly. Was the Lord leading Jonathan, or did he and David have a secret arrangement to where how they could communicate? We don't know, but it's quite possible that Jonathan had insight Saul didn't have. And Saul pronounces a false blessing over the Ziphites. And David and Jonathan, in contrast, enjoy a real blessing in the Lord. Now, what we read here is the danger of taking matters into our own hands and turning from praying to plotting. There's a lot of plotting going on today. Have you noticed that? There's a lot of plotting going on within the church and against the church. And the fact is, like Saul did in verse 7, some are claiming that their plots are blessed by the Lord. Well, God had not delivered David to Saul in Keilah, as he claimed, and the Ziphites were not blessed to the Lord, as Saul said they were. Now, First John five fourteen to 15, we're reminded. Now, this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything, what? According to what? His will. He hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. Now, did Saul's plotting get him what he wanted? No. Why? It wasn't of the Lord. It wasn't of God's will. And we need to keep that in mind today. And listen, prayer is not, here's what I'm going to do, Lord, please bless Prayer is, what would you have me to do, Lord? Here's the plan that I laid out. If this is something you're going to bless, please let me know, and I'll move forward. Or here is my situation, Lord. How do you want me to handle this? Now, Saul plotted when David was in Keilah. His plot failed. Saul now plots with the Ziphites. Anybody want to guess how successful his plot is going to be? 
whether it's success or failure, obviously the latter is the case. And let me give you another reminder from James in 5.17 to 18. James says Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Now, obviously, this reminds us of the power of prayer, but what we need to also recognize is it tells us of the purpose of prayer. And the point James was making was not, hey, Elijah, just like you, you can shut up the skies when you pray. The point was, is that Elijah was a regular guy like the rest of us who tapped into the power of prayer in order to fulfill the purposes of God. It was God's will that the skies be shut up for three and a half years. And he prayed according to the will of God. The Lord heard him and what he asked, and he had the petition he had asked of him. Now, this is what David was doing, and therefore this is what we should be doing as well. Now, David was considering engaging the Philistines, and he prayed. He asked if he should do so. He got some resistance to his answer. He prayed again. Then he acted on the answer defeated the Philistines. He became concerned about the actions of the Keilahites and how they would respond to Saul when he found out David and his company were there. David prayed. God said, get out of there. And he and his 600 men escaped. Saul plotted and failed, plotted and failed. And we're about to see Saul again, plot and fail. Now, one last thing to consider. Jonathan told David in verse 17, my father knows you're going to be king, so do I. Now that tells us that Saul had no interest in what God would have to say to him should he pray. And his prayerlessness was the result of already knowing what God's will was. Now, what Saul would have heard from the Lord is what he had already heard from the Lord through Samuel. And that is, I have rejected you as as king and picked a man who is better than you. Now, on a personal and practical level, we too need to be cautious about not praying for things we already know the answer to and not wanting to hear the Lord say no, not wanting to hear the Lord say repent or anything that is not to our liking. Now, the reason I say that is not plotting, well, or not praying, will always lead to plotting. And plotting will always lead to failing. Prayer will never lead to plotting, and will always give us access to supernatural insight, even if that insight is to remind us of something that we already know. Now, I don't know, some of you who've been around the church uh, for a few years like me, I probably heard some pretty weird stuff. I I remember there was a time uh, a woman had told Pastor Greg that uh, the Lord had told her to divorce her husband and Greg was to divorce Kathy and they were to be married. Now, that's somewhere in Fleshalonians, I'm sure, because that's certainly not in the word of God. And I've heard that over the years in so many other fashions as well. The Lord, the Lord told me to divorce my spouse and marry so-and-so. And listen, that's not prayerfulness, that's plotting. And plotting always leads to failure. So we don't need to be praying about something the Lord has already answered, at least not in that sense. If we're going to pray, what Saul should have prayed is help me accept your will. Help me to recognize the consequences for my 
uh, unbelief and disobedience in the past. And he should have been praying for David as well, because David was going to be the future king. But instead of praying, he started plotting. And God told Saul he was finished. David was his replacement. And it was nothing that Saul could do to circumvent or subvert what God had already spoken. So he was a man who was prayerless about an area he needed the most prayer in. And he resorted to plotting. Let's look at 24 to 29. You guys still here? Okay, here we go. 24. So they arose and went to Ziph before Saul. But David and his men were in the wilderness of Maon, in the plain southeast of Jeshimon. When Saul and his men went to seek him, they told David. Therefore, he went down to the rock and stayed in the wilderness of Maon. And when Saul heard that, he pursued David in the wilderness of Maon. Then Saul went on one side of the mountain and David and his men on the other side of the mountain. So David made haste to get away from Saul, for Saul and his men were encircling David and his men to take them. But a messenger came to Saul saying, hurry and come for the Philistines have invaded the land. Therefore, Saul returned from pursuing David and went against the Philistines. So they called that place the rock of escape. Then David went up from there and dwelt in the strongholds at in Gedi. And we'll see an interesting encounter that takes place there uh, next week. Now, David had moved about a two-hour walk from where he had been staying. And he is now being surrounded and circled, if you will, by Saul and his men, cutting off any avenue of escape. Now, as he was closing in on David, a messenger arrives. Uh, coincidence, obviously. A messenger arrives that says... Hey, we're under attack from the Philistines. And Saul abandons his plot against David and returns to fight against the Philistines. Now, the place where this took place, we see in our text, is called the Rock of Escape. But the word actually means, the word translated escape, actually means slipperiness. In other words, it's a place where David slipped from the grasp of Saul because Saul had him dead to rights. His men were coming around on both sides of the mountain and they had David trapped. Now, this is why David would write this in Psalm 54 about this very scene. He wrote in 54, 4 to 7, Behold, God is my helper. Somebody say amen. God is my helper. The Lord is with those who uphold my life. He will repay my enemies for their evil. Cut them off in your truth. I will freely sacrifice to you. I will praise your name, O Lord, for it is good. For he has delivered me out of all trouble, and my eye has seen its desire upon my enemies. Now, obviously, the Ziphites were David's enemy. And yet we're going to see he has a completely different perspective on Saul in our next chapter. But the Lord did help David. The Lord did uphold David. The Lord did thwart Saul's plotting and plans against him. And the Lord did answer David's prayer and upheld his life when he was trapped and even being encircled by Saul who sought to kill him. Now, this brings us back to our first truth. Saul didn't get what he wanted and David got exactly what he needed. Divine intervention that drew Saul away. And we'll talk more about that particular situation in a minute. One man plotted and the other prayed. The prayer got what he needed. The other did not get what he wanted. Now in Psalm 56, 11, David said, In God I have put my trust, I will not be what? 
will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Psalm 118.6, the anonymous author says, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Hebrews 13.6 quotes it from the Septuagint. It says, So we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Listen, this is why we can and should be prayers and not plotters. We can trust God and he answers prayer. Now, let me mention one more thing before we close as to the why of this. Now, again, we read in verse 9 that Saul plotted evil against David. We already alluded to it, but we'll dig at it a little deeper. The word plotted, as with both Greek and Hebrew words, they can have multiple meanings. The word translated as plotted can mean to cease, to be deaf, to leave off, to keep silent, to plan secretly. It can be translated as to speak not a word, and it can mean to hold your tongue. Now, since it's clear that Saul had plenty to say to the Ziphites and anybody who would assist him in seeking the capture of David then we might ask the question, who was Saul not speaking to? Who was it that he was holding his tongue and refraining from addressing concerning his pursuit of David? Well, I think it's pretty clear. Saul spoke not a word to the Lord. He was completely prayerless. And because he wasn't a prayer, he became a plotter. And this is what we need to realize about being prayerless and becoming plotters ourselves. And listen, here again, it's just a general observation in our concluding point. Listen tonight. Prayer will lead us into God's will. Plotting will lead us out of it. Prayer will lead us into God's will. Plotting will lead us out of it. Was Saul a plotter or a prayer? He was a plotter. Was it God's will that he pursue and kill David? No. Is he where he should be or shouldn't be when the Philistines were attacking? You see, plotting led him away from his responsibilities. Plotting led him away from where he should have been. Now, this is a secondary point here. We need to remember Saul and his men were encircling David. And the secondary point I want to make has two features to it. And the first is this. Listen. God will allow the enemy to get in closer proximity than we're comfortable with. I'm sure David didn't like the idea that Saul and his men were closing in on him, uh, circling the mountain on either side. Now, and God allowed it. God, we already were told that uh, he had not allowed Saul to find and capture David yet. Here the enemy is encircling both sides of a mountain and David and his 600 men They have dead to rights. Now, here's the other half. Here's the second consideration of that secondary point. Listen, the enemy's proximity does not diminish God's ability to deliver. It doesn't matter how close the enemy is. God can still deliver. Amen. Doesn't matter if they're on both sides of the mountain. Doesn't matter how close they are to us. God is able to deliver. Think about it. The children of Israel were pinned against the Red Sea with Pharaoh's army in hot pursuit after they exited Egypt. Did they get away? Yes. Joseph was in prison while he awaited the fulfillment of the dreams that he had had. After all, think about Daniel. Where was he? For praying, he was in 
the lion's den. What about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who would not bow when they heard the psaltery and the lyre and the other music that the whole city was told to bow down to the image that had been made? Where did they wind up? They wound up in the burning fiery furnace heated seven times hotter than it was usually heated. It was so hot, it killed the people that threw the three boys in there. And, you know, maybe the proximity to the fire wasn't their favorite part of the experience, but there was a fourth person that showed up. And he was like unto the Son of God. And listen, here's David. He'd already been just yards away from Goliath, and he won. And now he's being encircled by a fellow Jew who wants him dead. And none of these men were in any greater danger than if the enemy had been miles away or if they weren't in the lion's den, or hadn't been thrown in the burning fiery furnace. And listen, David wasn't in any more danger if Goliath had been three foot six instead of nine foot six. David was going to win. And listen, the proximity of our enemy does not mean that God has let us down. And listen, they are closing in on us today as the church. It's happening all around us. They are trying to silence us. They don't like the moral code that is established in the Bible. They had to do away with God as creator and therefore remove his right as authority over his creation. And since we're all just the end result of natural causes, nobody has a right to say anything's right and anything's wrong. And anybody that says anybody is wrong or there's a moral standard that we should all live by is out of step with reality and an enemy with the progressive agenda that we see advancing today. They are closing in on us, but listen... It doesn't matter how close they get because our God can tell the angel with a trumpet pursed at his lip, blow that thing and get my people out of here. Jeremiah said in 32, 17, all Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Read it with me, please. There is nothing too hard for you. Now, I want you to draw your attention to one last thing. David didn't say, the Lord is my defense, so I'll just sit here and wait for him to move. I'll just wait for him to act. I'm not going to do anything and just let God deal with Saul. Listen, David was on the move, but all of his moves were within the will of God and covered in prayer. Now, just remember this. Waiting is not stagnating. We need to be actively pursuing what God has for us to do. Now, I want to wrap up our time with a couple of exhortations based on David and Saul's actions. Saul was never going to get his way because what he wanted was against God's will. God said David's going to be king, and that meant David was going to be king. David was never going to get captured and killed by Saul because that would have been in conflict with what God had promised him. Saul kept plotting, his plots kept failing. David kept praying, the Lord kept leading. Saul may have gotten close to David, but he never got close to his plot succeeding. Saul may have encircled David, but David was never in danger of the word or will of the Lord concerning him falling short of what God had promised. Now, David was a man with a nature like ours. Just like Elijah. And therefore, because David's experiences were based on the unchanging nature of God, then we can expect the same exact things in our lives. So listen, when life is hard, the enemy seems near. Keep praying and don't let the devil talk you into plotting.
because plotting never works out for our good and praying always does. Somebody say, Amen. Amen. Father, we are grateful for our time in your word tonight. Thank you for this very odd and really sad chapter, Lord, as we see Saul continuing to just spin out of control. Lord, we thank you for the things that we're able to take home from this, recognizing that you are the Lord. You do not change. There is nothing too hard for you, and the enemy's proximity to us doesn't increase the likelihood or uh, probability that we're going to be captured or anything else, Lord. There's nothing too hard for you, no matter how close the enemy gets. And Lord, thank you that we've had the opportunity to recognize that you let our adversaries get a lot closer than we like sometimes. But you're faithful even then. So help us, Lord, to not resort to plotting, but to keep praying about everything and give thanks. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for us. Thank you for reminding us of that, too. So thank you, Lord, for what we see here in David's life. Especially, Lord, we thank you that this chapter follows a chapter of great failure. Two chapters of great failure. And yet, even after David failed greatly greatly and lied and cost people their lives, when he prayed, you answered. Thank you that that's true for us, too. When we've messed up, blown it big time, you still hear our cries and our prayers. And we thank you for that tonight. So help us, Lord, not to be afraid of man, for what can man do to us? There's nothing too hard for you. There's no situation from which you are unable to deliver. So we give you thanks, we give you praise, and we give you glory tonight. And help us, Lord, to be a people who pray about everything and plot about nothing. We thank you for these things tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well... Be praying. And uh, looking forward to this Sunday, we're really getting into some amazing things in the book of Acts. The whole thing has been an incredible journey. And I've been especially anxious about these chapters because I just last September was in the places that we're reading about. And uh, we're going to hear about a situation where uh, the Ephesians screamed for two hours. Great is Diana of the Ephesians and the anger and angst about the church. And this same cry is going out today, not about Diana, but about the church today. So we need to be reminded that God is for us. He's on our side. He's behind us. He has us in his hand. Nothing can separate us from his love. No one can snatch us from his hand. And even when the enemy's encircling Mount Zion, so to speak, figuratively, he's for us. And he can send a messenger at any time to get people either away from us or he can get us all out of here in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. I vote for the latter. Somebody say, God bless you. Would you all stand?